Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Well, it's been a rough ride in the UK gilt market recently, particularly if you've owned the long-dated version. Now, this all adds to the evidence that the era of low and negative interest rates is behind us, and we are, in fact, in a higher rate, higher inflation regime. So, does this spell the end for hopeful, high-growth managers? Will passive investors who simply track indices continue to meet their investment objectives? And is this the time for balance sheet scrutiny and concentrate on near-term cash generation in company analysis? And the million-dollar question, is this the time for active managers to shine? Well, my guest this week certainly thinks so. His name is Richard Oldfield of Oldfield & Partners, and he is a classic value investing rock star. Now, he started out at Mercury Asset Management, and after a stint, the family office started Oldfield & Partners. He's also an acclaimed author, and in 2007 wrote a brilliant book, Simple But Not Easy, which is a very readable book. I'd highly recommend it if you want to understand the mechanics of investing. It's so good, in fact, that his publishers asked him to update it, which he dutifully did in December last year. It was wonderful to speak to Richard. He's an accomplished investor and a lovely human being. This is the Why Invest podcast. Richard Oldfield, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Richard, let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in London and Jamaica, where I spent a couple of years, but we won't diverse into that too heavily. (laughs) It's left me with an abiding love of Jamaica. I went to Oxford, I did history, I applied to various merchant banks, including Rothschilds and Warburgs, and I got into Warburgs. And uh, within about six weeks of the tour, which was a sort of natural thing at Warburgs, the the two-year tour of departments before you um, settled into a department, I found myself in the International Investment Department, which sounds quite grand, but it was tiny. It had maybe half a dozen people because international was really so new. And they asked me to stay. And so I did stay forever. Mm -hmm. And what sort of taking a step back, what first drew you to the world of investment? And how far back does that go? Uh, It goes back a long way. I was pretty nerdy, even at prep school. I think I'm right in saying even at prep school, I looked at the share price page of the Telegraph, though I don't know what I made of it. And I certainly did as a teenager and invested you know, 50 quid or something, when I was about 17, I think, or 18, after the secondary banking crisis, the first share I ever bought was a thing called Britannia Arrow. And Britannia Arrow was the insurance rump of Slater Walker Holdings. Slater Walker had gone bust in the secondary banking crisis, but it was a conglomerate and it had some good bits. One good bit was the insurance company. I knew nothing whatever about it, but it had a share price of 6p, and it had changed its name. And I know that my reasoning was that I could make 18p and I could only lose 6p. And so I was drawn kind of intuitively to the world of penny shares, which in a way is a sort of subsector of value investing. I knew nothing about the company. I certainly wouldn't have known anything about how to value it. 
but that was what I did. Anyway, that was fatal because it worked out well. So I then got keen on investment. But it's always a terrible one. Your first investment is, is a good one. <laughs> yeah. um, do you think, therefore, I mean, it sounds like value investing is sort of in your DNA. Do you yes. think a value investor is born as a value investor? Or can you become a value investor? I do think it's in the blood. I mean, of course, you learn more about it and you learn with a bit of luck to do it better. Not necessarily, but you you hope to do it better as you learn more. There are so many people for whom Benjamin Graham has been a moment of epiphany. There's so many people I've talked to who said, I read The Intelligent Investor, I read Securities Analysis, I think chapter six is usually the one. It's rather like in conversion to Christianity, it's Romans chapter seven, I think it is. But for value investors, it's The Intelligent Investor or it's Securities Analysis, and they say it was a sort of switch-on moment. It was a eureka moment. But I think that they're switched on, so to speak. They're already, there's a light waiting to be switched on. It's dormant, it's latent. And for me, it was certainly there from the start. I was always drawn from the very first to companies with low valuations. And I think that comes from a sort of curmudgeonly temperament. I think that value investors are not nearly as much fun as growth investors. If you went to a party, if you could spot them, it'd be growth investors you want to go and talk to. They're the ones who look much more fun than value investors. Because value investors are sceptical about optimistic forecasts. That's the sort of guiding principle of value investment. The value investor believes that there is a tendency for there to be too much optimism when things are going well, and there's too much pessimism when things are going badly. And the valuations reflect that excessive enthusiasm or excessive gloom. And so the value investor is drawn to cheapness because there's a good likelihood that at least in a large part of that sort of array of cheapness, there will be companies where the gloom is overstated and things are better than the share price seems to indicate. So, yeah, it was always in, in my blood. And um, we will no doubt get on to all the failures, of which have been far, far, far too many. But a very early investment that I made was in 1981, before I started running portfolios. So this was for me. And it was News Corporation at 3.1 times earnings. Then, incidentally, some of the newspaper companies' reach was at two times earnings about three or four years ago. So, in other words, and of course, money back in two years' time. You get your money. Well, yes. If if earnings are static, you get your money back in two years' time. Mm -hmm. If earnings go down, it might take a little longer. It might take three or four years' time. Mm -hmm. But it's only if earnings absolutely, if the company collapses, that you don't get your money back. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the market is pricing the company to collapse. Exactly. Exactly. And I think you have that now. I mean, we not to be too sort of current and certainly not to be too forecasting. But I think you have that now in sections of the UK market where because of Brexit, because of Boris, because of uh, the current deficit, the weakness of sterling. Trustonomics. Maybe trustonomics. The feeling that um, Britain is just not the Great Britain that it used to be and, and that's reflected in international investors' perception. Because of that... I think now, and you would know much better than me because I'm stale and I'm not a practitioner anymore, but it seems to me there are lots of companies which are really very attractive because they're selling at low single-figure multiples Mm -hmm. because the immediate prospects are rather dire, particularly consumer-facing companies. But lots of them have tremendous assets. I think of pub companies, for example, 
really low valuations in terms of earnings. The earnings are probably going to go down, but the assets behind them are enormous. And I would go back to your career. So you started at Warburg's and then you moved on to Mercury. Mercury was Warburg's. Ah, okay. Uh, Mercury was 75% owned by Warburg's. It was the investment division of Warburg's, which became emancipated and independent. And then how long did you stay? I I was at Warburg's stroke Mercury for 19 years. In between, I went to run a family office. And I did that for nine very happy years. And then you found it. And then I found it for partners. What what did you want? Uh, What was the aim? Well, at the family office... I had a wonderful taste of independence. Mercury was a fantastic place to be surrounded by very clever people, to learn the job, to have the Warburg, the Sigmund Warburg ethos of hard work and attention to detail and so on, and also the Mercury ethos, which was a good deal of independence. But it nonetheless was a huge institution. And the great thing about going to the family office that I went to was that they had a blank sheet of paper with lots of money on top of it. And they were willing to give a great deal of freedom. And so in addition to doing the business of choosing other managers, which was the bulk of the business of of that office, we also ran in-house very substantial um, global portfolios and also emerging market portfolios. And I did the global. And I was able to put into practice all the prejudices which I'd accumulated over 19 or more years which were really, in a sort of nutshell, they were concentrated portfolios. Uh, Portfolios in institutional hands are very often hugely over-diversified, I think, because the nature of the institutional management is that you have a whole lot of people running different sections of the portfolio. You have maybe somebody who runs the Asian part of a global portfolio, somebody who runs the Japanese part, somebody who runs the American part. And each of those sub-portfolios, so to speak, will not have less than sort of 20 stocks. And so by the time you've got a whole equity portfolio, there are hundreds and hundreds of stocks. So concentration was one thing where every stock matters. And then a very strong tendency to value every company having a low valuation with, in principle, a sound business. So a sound business, low valuation, concentration, and then... What I also felt very much was that in the in the city, you have thousands of people who come to their desks every day and focus with huge intensity on what happened yesterday in markets and yesterday to companies, to earnings. And there is a tremendous pressure to do things all the time. It takes enormous discipline to come to your desk, sit at it all day, do quite a lot of reading, and at the end of the day, go home without having done anything. But I think not doing things is a very important plus. And so low turnover is therefore a long-term outlook is very important. And then another facet is trying to not be too close to the freneticism of the market and also the freneticism of the belief that contacts with companies gives you an edge. I don't really believe in this question of edge. The question all clients always ask or consultants always ask is what is your edge? And I don't really believe there is such a thing as an edge. We all have the same information, access to the same information. Really, the the problem these days, which was not the problem 50 years ago when my father was a stockbroker, the problem these days is to cull information and to sift information and to concentrate on the things that matter and not get distracted by all the huge number of things that don't matter 
and not get distracted by spreadsheets which allow you to play around with assumptions and produce hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different boxes with figures in and give you an impression of sort of certitude, which is entirely false. It's like being precisely wrong rather than sort of roughly right. Exactly. And actually, I wonder if you can elaborate on this, on your point on, on meeting managers and, and the dangers of meeting managers, because I know you've written a lot about it and we're going to come on to your book in a minute, but why do you think it's dangerous meeting management? And can you give some examples? I mean, I, I came to that conclusion that you shouldn't hang your hat too heavily on what the management tells you. When I was at Mercury and I used to go to the States, I was head of the US equity team, and I, I saw Walmart, I think, three times. And each time I went, I was absolutely bowled over because they were extremely good at selling the Sam Walton ethos of cost-cutting, cost-control. You sat in a room. In those days, you'd get a one-on-one -on -one with the chief financial officer in a room, rather a tatty room. He pointed at his Ford Escort or whatever the American equivalent is in the car park outside. And one came away always sort of persuaded that the stock was worth two more on the PE than before the visit. And that is that's a dangerous thing to think that the idea, I, I also use the phrase travel narrows the mind. You go to a distant country, Russia, for example, in 1997, where I went, came back very enthusiastic. The market dropped 90% soon after. Um, you go to a distant country and you think, having just been really a sort of investment tourist and a first-time investment tourist, that you really got a handle mm. and you haven't got a handle at all. A little knowledge is a very dangerous thing. And management, so one thing management's are very good at is in selling the company's story. And so I think you have to be very wary about putting too much um, credibility in what management say and you put much more credibility on what they do and on the company. Warren Buffett said that thing about, I forget the exact words, but he said something like, if you have a bad company, a bad business, and a great management is the reputation of the business which survives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the sort of, that was the theory that I worked with for how many years, like 30 years or so, that you should be reasonably wary. And I, we come unstuck in my firm, and I have come unstuck when departing from that. For example, with Tesco, one of our worst mistakes, were when Phil Clark took over from Terry Leahy, we were very sympathetic to Phil Clark because Terry Leahy, who had been, of course, a rock star, a, a, a rock star exactly. But in the last stages, he drove the company very hard. There's a wonderful book by what she called Bevan, something Bevan, about Marks and Sparks, in which she quotes Simon Marks, who said that if you have margins over a certain level, you're doing it wrong because either the quality or the service is suffering. And that's exactly what happened at Tesco. In fact, both suffered. And the service suffered enormously. I got into huge trouble with my son because I used to go into Tesco stores sometimes with him and either, either ask to see the manager to point out that the cereals were all terribly damaged and they were all lying all over the place and had holes in them, or a year later asked to see the manager to congratulate her on the wonderful state of the cereal shelves. Anyway, <laughs> the, either the service or the, or the quality suffer. That's what happened. Now, Phil Clark declared that a trading margin of 5.2% was a realistic target. And we... High, right? That's which is high, but, of course, but it was lower than what had been achieved in the previous years under Terry Leahy. And we adopted this. 
and we plugged it into our spreadsheets, even though, in fact, our own work, more back of the envelope, had thrown doubt on whether that was really possible. So I think that was a classy case. And we did it really because we were so, I think we were sympathetic to Phil Glob because he got a difficult legacy. Then with the next um, installment of management with Dave Lewis and the accounting scandal, it became clear that there were all sorts of tricks being employed in order to try to maintain this margin, including what the most astounding figure was that... um, the number of SKUs, the number of selling items, had increased by 31% over one year. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, it all sort of became evident, was that you get promotional payments from your suppliers for new products. And so there were, you know, there were tricks being employed in order to try to maintain a trading margin which was under enormous pressure. But the point of this is that we made that mistake because we did trust in the management too much. Mm-hmm. And I think it also works in, in reverse. One of our best sales was of Renault because there was a sort of juxtaposition at the time of Renault and Microsoft. How far back is this? Oh, this is quite a long way back. What was the early of Microsoft back then? I mean, it was oh, uh, it was low double. Okay. This yeah. is a long way back. I'm afraid we sold it you know, long, long before it became rock star territory. But it was soon after Steve Ballmer had taken over. And the point is that at the time, everything that Carlos Ghosn did was regarded as a plus. And so if he increased the number of um, lines of cars, that was tremendous plus. He couldn't put a foot wrong, and the multiple on Renault was very high. And we are wary of the premature beatification of chief executives. And that's what we thought we had with Carlos Ghosn. Of course, mm-hmm. we weren't predicting that he would get... He would get... He would get... Well, no, I mean, we had no idea he would get yeah. into all the trouble yeah, yeah, that he subsequently yeah. got into. Yeah. But meanwhile, the juxtaposition was Steve Ballmer was regarded as somebody who couldn't put a foot right. And the multiple was very low. It may even have been lower than what I've just said. And so it was one of the factors which led us to sell Renault at that time. And I think we already held, but perhaps we increased Microsoft. I forget, it's lost in the mists of time. Well, they all thought that Microsoft back then was probably going to turn into IBM. Exactly. And I want to go back to your point on discipline and how your philosophy of of value investing and making sure that you're not focusing too much on silver-tongued chief executives, making sure that you're not being precisely wrong. How does that play out in practice within the process of, of field partners? Well, it means that we do focus much more on the record of what people have done than what they're promising to do. We focus much more on the current than on the future. Now, that can be very painful because the last 10 years, really, in markets until this year, has been all about a focus on the future. That's where the excitement has always been. Growth companies, by their nature, are focusing on the future and on tremendous prospects, which may be quite distant. And at a time when the discount rate is very low, you can afford to look at prospects which are very distant. And so we focus much more on current. That, of course, can get us into trouble, not just relative, but it can get us into absolute trouble if the current is not at all a guide to what the immediate future is, if uh, there's a dramatic change in a company's prospects. Mm-hmm. And it can get one into trouble in with highly cyclical companies. Mm-hmm. And so one of the sort of practical implications of our philosophy is that since we do invest in cyclical companies and we don't really believe we have a greater ability to forecast the cycle than anybody else, probably 
less and a lot of people were very skeptical of forecasts in general. Um, if we're investing in, in cyclical companies, we've got to be sure that they're of a quality, and that means particularly balance sheet quality, that will see us through if the next two, three years happen to be complete duds. And so low leverage is very important. And where we've departed from that, it's sometimes been painful. There's this sort of debate in investment circles and in value investment circles about whether you should be quality value. And we think we are quality value, but it's not the same quality value that other people would say. Was so quality. what's your definition? Well, I, th- I think they have this has flexed a lot in recent years. It has. Because of low discount rates, low cost of capital. You know, most of the value in some of these businesses sits in the terminal part yeah. of the valuation. So, so what's your definition? Well, I think just to touch on, on the last point you made first, I think that um, you're being kind because I think the tendency towards uh, sort of loosening the reins of value investing have been above all driven by performance. And people have got more and more concerned about investing in low valuation companies that don't produce the performance goods and have therefore changed their philosophy to allow different definitions of value. And that includes, for example, looking at five or even 10-year forecasts. And then it all becomes a bit meaningless to talk about value because you can. Uh, there's a circularity in these things. If you, you, you like the company, your forecast is going to be good and that justifies on a valuation basis investing now. But it ceased really to be a value investment. And I think Warren Buffett, saint though he is, has led all of us to be a bit confused about this because Warren Buffett is regarded as a value investor, particularly because of his Ben Graham sort of origins. But to invest in Coca-Cola is not, on the whole, a value investment. He's much more versatile and to his great sort of credit in, in achievement terms. But he's not, I think, a value investor in the way that I think of value investors. Cigar butt. More cigar butt-ish, yeah. And more Benjamin Graham-ish. Do you think that's the influence of Charlie Munger? Yes, I, well, I think it may well be. I don't know because I'm not on the inside of their sort of conversation. But so everybody says. Yeah. Um, now I've forgotten what your question was. The question was, well, first of all, how do you define value for quality investing? And then secondly, do you flex? How, to what extent have you had to flex your, your process? Yeah. So quality, what we mean by quality in terms of um, the sort of companies that we invest in is the quality of balance sheet, low leverage is really important if you're going to invest in cyclical companies. I don't say we don't sometimes make exceptions to that, but on the whole, the companies in our portfolio on average have a much lower leverage than the market. Quality of management, but that is very tricky for the reasons I've just talked about. Assessing management is has to be done much more by record than by words. And then quality of business. So for example, in the mining sector, where we have invested, we want to be sure that we're investing in companies which have assets which are the lowest cost assets. So Rio Tinto, for example, right at the left-hand side of the, of the cost spectrum in almost all its metals that it produces. So those are the three things, the quality of the business, quality of management, and the quality of, of balance sheet. But not deviating from the sort of overriding principle, which is we want to invest in companies which have low price earnings multiples, price cash flow multiples, price to asset multiples. Very often we work on some of the parts basis, so there may be a large discount to some of the parts. I'm going to change text slightly and talk about the active-passive debate. And you've been very clear about the next 10 years being quite a good 
hunting ground for active managers. I wonder if active management can work when there is such a large weight of money in passive structures. So passives, when I talk about passives, I mean index hugging structures. Well, my assumption, the reason that I think that we probably have one of those phases where the average active manager does well is based on an assumption that, in fact, the weight of money diminishes. And why should the weight of money diminish? Because for a short period, the average active does a good deal better than passive. And all that money that has gone into passive, or some of it, then becomes rather sort of self-questioning. And they wonder, are they doing the right thing? Because the starting point is that passive is such a crazy thing to do. It's crazy in the sense that these indices were not designed to be things that you invest in. They were designed as things which measured performance. I mean, the classic case that shows this sort of um, uh, nuttiness of investing in line with an index is 99-2000, when in uh, March 2000, right at the peak of the, of the tech boom, the index committee of FTSE chucked out a whole lot of really sort of old-fashioned traditional companies. Whitbread was one of them. I think AB Foods was another. And they brought in 10 companies whose names usually began with an X, and they were all ended with an X. And they were, you know, the, the most uh, exotic, newfangled tech companies with no earnings and very little sales. The market then topped. And six months later, and they did that because indices are governed wholly, these indices anyway, as opposed to what are called the fundamental indices. But these indices are the way in which they're constructed is solely based on market capitalization. So if your share price goes up, you're more likely to get into the index. And so these tech boom companies deserve their place, and the traditional companies cease to deserve their place. Six months later, the market having reversed, the index committee itself had to reverse. Meanwhile, Whitbread had gone up by 25%, but it wasn't in the index. AB Foods had gone up by 25%, wasn't in the index. All those stocks beginning with an X had gone down by 25%. Some of them have vanished since. Where is Baltimore Technologies? No, it's probably doing extremely well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I see. So that, that's an illustration of why the index is a nutty thing to invest in. Yet it may, and this is a sort of paradox, it may all the same be less nutty than being active because, as we all know, the active manager, on average, has to underperform over time because active managers compose the market. And then they have fees and transaction costs. So it may be that it's, it's more sensible to climb on the coattails of a lunatic in the form of an index fund than it is to try to do your own thing. But I think one has to be aware that it is a lunatic on whose coattails you're hanging on to. And there are periods in which, even though over the long term the active manager must underperform, things go a bit awry. And they've gone very awry in the last 10 years because passive has massively outperformed active. It shouldn't massively, it should just slightly outperform. And I think you could have, as I say, 10 years in which is different because all that money, you talked about the wage money, all that money going in is forced particularly into, if you take the S&P, the top five stocks, which constitute an unprecedentedly high percentage of the whole index. When it comes out, if it comes out, because there's a bit of self-questioning and disappointment, it isn't going to be replaced by active portfolios which have just as much in those five stocks because on the whole, an active portfolio simply will not hold 25% in five stocks. Most are much more diversified than my firms. That means that the index, 
will tend to underperform because those five stocks will get less attention. You see what I mean? And then that can be self-perpetuating for a number of years. That's what I think is quite likely to happen. So I suppose, you know, passive is probably the wrong word because buying the index, you're actually taking quite an active bet on a few quite concentrated large cap nicks. I think you are. You're just escaping scrutiny in a way. There isn't a manager to scrutinize. Uh, But that's why I think you could unravel fairly quickly because... There isn't a manager to blame as only yourself. And therefore, if it doesn't work for two years, say, I think trustees will be saying, oh dear, we've rather overdone this passive. We need to roll back and have more equity. I would focus our attention on your book, Simple But Not Easy. And I recommend all of our listeners they haven't read it, they should read it. Thank you. It's an autobiography, but it's really a whirlwind introduction to various areas of finance. First written in 2007, and I gather you've re-released it yeah. this year. Why did you want to re-release it? Uh, well, very simply, really, it sold out. And there was a choice, therefore, of reprinting something which was now very stale in 2007. Or Harriman House wanted something new, asked me for something new. You tempted to write another book? No, I wasn't tempted to write another book about investment. As I'm afraid this was the easy option, which is that the 2007 book is reproduced without any changes at all, with all the faults and flaws and so forth of the original book. But there's a 60-page extra, which covers the 14 years since, and it came out in December last year. And That's why. Right, the original book. Because I did want to express all these um, prejudices that I had built up over the years. And I like writing, simple as that, really. Well, I recommend, um, you know, in particular our younger listeners, but... On that, what advice would you give out to our younger listeners who are looking to pursue a career in investment management? I had a, a great friend, an old man, who once met J.P. Morgan, and uh, he rather sucked up to J.P. Morgan, and he said, um, Mr. Morgan, what advice would you give a young man just setting off in the world? And uh, J.P. Morgan sucked his cigar and looked at him, and he said, young man, never smoke in bed. <laughs> So I think I will give that advice to the, the younger, the younger listeners. Um, I think my advice is, well, first of all, make sure it's really in your heart to do it because it can be a soul-destroying profession, investment. You do have this oddity about investment that the average manager underperforms. And you have to be able to deal with long, long periods of frustration, disappointment, self-doubt, mistakes, and you have to get through them and be confident that you're doing something that you like doing and that you're doing something that you're confident that in the long term you can do well in. I see quite a lot of, or have seen over the years, I'm now, as I say, too stale for me to be at all helpful. But anyway, young people have come to see me to say, can you give me some advice? And they say, I want to do financial services. And if they say that, I say, roughly speaking, go away. (laughs) Because you're doing this because you want to make some money rather than because you're really drawn to it. Mm -hmm. If you were really drawn to it, you'd know whether you wanted to do mergers and acquisitions or investment management or lending or or insurance or something. Mm -hmm. I've got into trouble for this. This was one young guy who came to see me said he wanted to do financial services. I said, what would you like to do if you didn't do financial services? He said, I'd like to be a cook. 
And I said, go and be a cook. And his mother was absolutely lilied. He subsequently joined Deutsche Bank and has done very well. <laughs> Not in the kitchen. <laughs> so make sure you're interested in investment. Yeah. Um, of course, there are people who come to it differently than I did, but I just was always interested. I always cared about share prices in, a, as I say, a very geeky way. If you are interested, then read. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think your biggest, your, your, your prime number one. Well, I do think, I think Ben Graham is a sort of must. Um, Graham and Dodd are a must. And then I think that other investment books that are very good, Howard Marks is really marvellous. His letters. His letters and also the two or three books he's written. And a lesser-known book is about a man called Peter Cundall, who I knew very well, who's a Canadian value manager. And it's a book about him. It's called There's Always Something to Do, and it's by Christopher Risseau-Gill. I strongly recommend that. Final few questions, Richard. I want to know, you know, you've outlined what it means to be a value investor, and, you know, it kind of it sits in here in your heart. I'm tucking my heart. Um, I wonder if it permeates other areas of your life. When you go to the shop and you cheesed off, if you get ripped off, you go buy a car, you cheesed off about being ripped off. Does it sort of transcend everything you do in life? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. I mean, for example, I did a sort of charity thing for a friend of living on a pound a day some years ago on food and drink a pound a day. And it was possible but it made me very aware of the cost of chocolate. <laughs> well, if you compare the cost of a bar of green and black with the cost of a bar of Bourneville, I think the ratio is about four or five even. Does the quality of the chocolate deserve that differential? I don't mean to be attacking no, uh, an, other an, an individual are brand. Course, other chocolate bars are. <laughs> anyway, I think, I think I am quite aware of those sort of differentials. Yeah. Well, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Richard Ohl, and I would urge our listeners to go and buy the new version of the book. I've read your book a while ago, so I should probably read the extra 60 pages. Richard Oldfield, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Richard Oldfield from Oldfield and Partners. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. Now, on the next episode of the Why Invest podcast, We are joined by Claire Balding, broadcaster, journalist, and all-round national treasure. I hope you can join us for that. Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.